Hey folks, this is Eric, the Ambassador of Common Sense, with you here at the podcast.catholicthemes.com. Uh, sorry I don't have the Ambassador of Nonsense with me today. He uh, kind of bailed on me, completely bailed on me. I texted him, I asked him if he's ready to record. He told me he was too busy doing his son's homework. So, now you know what kind of man the Ambassador of Nonsense is. He's the kind of man who would do his boy's homework for him and uh, deprive said boy of the chance to learn so he's the kind of man who would make children of america ignorant and stupid now for today's topic i'm a little bit out of a loss uh tell you the truth dan was supposed to cover this week so i really didn't prepare anything i guess i could talk about honesty and integrity about taking credit for people's work uh, maybe that hits a little too close to home. Uh, maybe we'll talk about commitments and making and keeping commitments and the importance of that. I don't think we talked about that before, and I'm probably better suited to talk about that than Dan. Uh, maybe that. Then again, maybe the best subject for me is forgiveness. You know, we could all do a little bit more with forgiveness for people who let us down and break commitments. I might play with the musical scores that uh, we recently acquired. Hopefully make it a little bit more interesting. Not that it'll make it any better, but uh, it'll remove some of that awkwardness. Because I've never talked to a microphone before. I usually talk to uh, uh, the ambassador of nonsense, but since he's not here, that's it'll make it better for me. There's an old cliché. That you have to forgive, but you don't have to forget. And I don't think that's always necessarily true. I think a lot of times it isn't true. Don't get me wrong, sometimes it is. For example, if uh, you're, you're not under some kind of obligation to put yourself in a position where you're in danger of being harmed, you don't have to make yourself someone's punching bag. For example, a... A woman who's uh, got a, an abusive spouse doesn't have to put herself and her kids in danger and stay in that position where he's liable to beat her um, and probably shouldn't because that's uh, a temptation on him as well as, you know, that's enabling in a sense. But uh, there's a difference between being harmed and being hurt. And there are times I think you might have to put yourself in a position to be hurt um, depending on uh, on what's going on. I mean, you, if someone habitually hurts you and lets you down, you might have to put borders around them, but just make sure they're not borders around yourself. Um, and then, of course, those, those, those times where there's a real big hurt, that's that's hard to forgive people for um, and the classic example is the spouse who is unfaithful unfortunately it it happens kind of often and that's usually when I hear people say I don't have to forget that and I think that's one of those times you almost do have to forget because um, not forgetting makes it almost impossible for the relationship to ever work again. One of the common uh, things is that you, you might forgive, but 
uh, you no longer trust ever and you know in practical terms uh, that means uh, you see them in a compromising position you automatically assume the worst or even a questionable situation and you constantly dig for more information you make accusations you peek into things like the internet histories or search through the wallet or the purse um, it makes it kind of impossible for the relationship to move forward at all it all grinds to a halt and in times like that it is a choice not to forgive or at least not to forget and if you've chosen not to forget you're probably also choosing not to forgive uh, you just might not be admitting it to yourself and you say well yeah well they're the ones who cheated that's why the trust is no longer there it's their fault and I can't put a stop to that any more than I could put a stop to their unfaithfulness mm, I, I think you're sometimes we make decisions to hold on to these things but if you you look kind of closer to the inward part of this you see that it's it's really not forgiving that you're doing when you don't forget generally that means you're not forgiving either now i'm using the example of unfaithful spouse just kind of as a stepping point there but in in like i said it's because it does happen a lot destroys a lot of marriages destroys a lot of lives but it doesn't have to be that it could be something else entirely like a a friend who hurts you or lies to you or steals from you or breaks a real big commitment to uh, record a podcast. Now, if you choose not to trust someone, you have to look at what the end goal is there. What are you really trying to accomplish? Um, what you want is not to be lied to again, not to be made the fool. You don't want to go on your merry way being naive, thinking this person is going to give you the same respect that you give them. And you say, uh, they can't get away with it again. I don't have to allow it. I forgive them, but I can't forget. There might be a little bit of pride here, but I think the real sin is fear. Maybe a lack of hope and despair. Fear is the expectation that something bad is going to happen. And it can paralyze you if you let it. It won't just affect your relationship with the person who wronged you, it will affect your relationship with everyone. You'll put up wall after wall and obstructions and solid barriers to keep anyone from getting close enough to hurt you as much as that person hurt you. And you put too many walls around yourself and uh, I can tell you, you, you build for yourself a very lonely place. But then every time you think to yourself that you might let someone in, that you might try to give that person another chance you're reminded of what they did and then you think I don't have to let someone hurt you me that's not a part of Christianity that's not in the deal but let's think back to Jesus and I hate to sound cliche but what would Jesus do what did Jesus do did uh, did he trust Judas did he trust Peter I guess in a sense you could say he didn't trust them because he knew they were going to lie and that he knew they were going to betray him. But he didn't pull his friendship away from them either. He let them inside. 
Jesus knew that Judas was going to lead the soldiers to him that night, and he knew everything that it entailed, the torture and finally the murder, all because of one of his chosen uh, twelve betrayed him. But Jesus, Judas was still sitting there at the Last Supper. He wasn't disinvited. And Peter, with Peter, he went beyond inviting him to that uh, famous ceremonial meal. He brought Peter into the garden to pray for him uh, with his very intimate friends during those last vital moments when he was so desperate for some kind of comfort. And he knew all along that Peter would deny knowing him. Um, with that in mind, he left his tire, entire church under Peter's care. You might say Peter didn't, or uh, Jesus didn't trust Peter in a sense that he didn't believe Peter would stick by him. He couldn't believe that because he could see what was going to happen. But he didn't treat Peter as untrustworthy. If he hadn't made the prediction, if he hadn't said those words, you will deny knowing me three times, we would have assumed that he was trusting Peter because he didn't treat Peter or Judas as he would a betrayer. The fact is, Jesus allowed himself to be hurt by them, and not just emotionally, but physically as well. And remember that Jesus was human, and Peter's denial might have been the deepest cut he had endured during his uh, passion, but he allowed it to happen. So what does this mean to us? Does it mean we have to allow someone to use us as a doormat or a punching bag to let people walk all over us? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that, but I can tell you this much. Putting yourself in a vulnerable position, allowing someone to have power over you to hurt you is not sinful. Obviously, habitual liars and cheats have to have some kind of boundaries and again, you make sure the boundaries around them, not yourself. Think for a minute of the most naive person you know, the one who could be fooled by absolutely anyone. Now, do you like that person? Uh, can you think of anyone who doesn't like that person? I, I bet you can't. Because naivety is a sign of innocence. And not only does God favor the innocent, but other people favor them as well. There was a time when I was around 20 years old. Uh, I was delivering pizzas at night to help pay some of the bills. I was married with two kids. And I was one of those fearless guys who just kind of didn't give my own safety much thought. I was like any other 20-year-old. Uh, nothing could hurt me. And I was probably going to live forever. Then I got mugged. Even while I was on my way back to the store, where I was going to call the police, fill out papers, do everything I can do to capture the boys who mugged me, put them behind bars, I was of a mind that I had to forgive them. And I consciously did so, right then. And I thought that was the end of my emotional response. I was angry, I decided to forgive them, I did forgive them, and then I called the cops and tried to get... Uh, justice, but I still forgave them. And the cops never found them, by the way. It, it turns out it that wasn't the end of it. Um, I could not continue to deliver pizzas 
it was just too much for me. Every night, on every delivery, I had panic attacks. I would pray for my car to break down so that I could spend the night in the store instead of out uh, making deliveries. And once or twice I even faked. I left the pizza place and found some other part-time work and I thought that would solve the problem. Not having to deliver in these dark apartment complexes in the middle of the night would make the fear go away, but it was hardly over. Over the next year or so, I had severe panic attacks whenever I saw a group of black teenagers, especially at nights or in sketchy neighborhoods. And I'm telling you this is a physical malady, not just an emotional response. I had no fear of physical harm for myself or even of death, but even the shadows in dark corners would cause my heart rate to increase and I would get dizzy. And as I drove around during the day, I would daydream about that night. I would fantasize about it, really. I bet most of you women don't know how much men fantasize. You think you know, but you really have no idea. It starts at a very young age. When I was 10, I remember fantasizing about the Incredible Hawk. I'm showing my age there. I know other men my age had similar fantasies because the Hawk, played by Lou Ferrigno at the time, it was huge. Most boys watched that show. But I would sit and think about uh, the time at school when the class bully picked on me. Or better yet, picked on the girl who sat two seats in front of me. And I would start off easy in these little fantasies with some kind of words of warning and maybe a little push. He'd push back or he'd threaten or he'd threaten the girl who sat two seats in front of me. And that's when it would start to happen. My arms would bulk up and I would suddenly look like Lou Ferrigno. Personally, I didn't like the green makeup. I felt that was... I, I left that part out of the dream. But I did get so big that my shirt and my pants would split and I'd pick up a car and swing it at the bully. But he would dodge the car and suddenly his friends, who were all ninjas, that just came out of nowhere would jump in to help him. And I'd pick up my pick up trucks and semis, use them as battering rams, smashing everything and everyone as I defended the honor of the girl who sat two seats ahead of me. That fantasy continued until the Incredible Hulk was replaced by He-Man, G.I. Joe, or a thousand other characters. Men fantasize about everything you can think of, from fixing cars to fixing relationships and conflicts. Every conflict, no matter how well it went in real life, gets fantasized about later on. Fistfights, arguments, debates, all of it. Even snide back and forths between co-workers like the office manager, Paul, who I used to work with. <clears throat> we don't like to admit it because we don't want to, people to know how, how silly these things are that we're thinking about. Your wife always wants to know, doesn't she? She has to know what you're thinking about. It's the most common question asked of men by their wives. What are you thinking about? What do we always say? We make things up. I was thinking about how lucky I am to have you in my life, something like that. If your hubby says something like that, I can guarantee you he's lying. And I bet 75% of the time we're asked that question, we're fantasizing about something. My wife asked me that last night. I was in the middle of a fantasy about Paul, the office manager. He had made a little joke concerning the size of my feet. I'm 40-something years old. Who the hell makes 
fun of a 40-year-old man about his foot size. What are we, back in second grade? Well, it sure seemed like it, because in my mind, he had pushed me a little too hard. My arms started balking up, my neck, well, suddenly I had no neck because the muscles had grown so enormous and I no longer looked like a pencil-necked dweeb. And Paul, the office manager, even though he witnessed this change in me, continued to dig at me about my personal uh, appearance and laughed at the way my pants had split, even though the reason they had split was because I was suddenly turning into a hulking monster. That Paul, he never knows when to shut up. I'll shut it up for him. I picked up a piece of rebar that had been sitting there. How a piece of rebar ended up in the office, I'll never know. But there it was, and I wrapped it around his head like it was a piece of string, and I pulled it tight so it ended up across his mouth like a gag. Instead of shutting up, he kept at it. But he was mumbling now, and I couldn't hear what he was saying, but I know he's still making fun of me because he was pointing at my shoes and laughing. And then he did the unthinkable. He made fun of my wife. Well, that's when I picked up the water cooler, and I swung it at him, knocked him against the wall. His head made a little dent in the plaster as he hit it, and he sank to the floor, and he started to get up again, so I threw the water cooler at him. He ducked just in time, and the water cooler hit the wall instead of him. It sailed right through, leaving this giant hole. So I picked up the copier machine, the big one with the cabinet, not the little one we use as a fax machine. I lunged that at him, and my wife said, What you thinking about? Now, am I really going to tell her what I was thinking about? Am I going to tell her I was thinking about turning into the Hulk and beating up Paul, the office manager? I hadn't even gotten to the good part yet, where Paul's ninja friends tried to intervene, and I opened up a can of whoop-ass on them, too. I'm not going to tell her that. It's embarrassing. So you make things up when your wife asks that question, because you don't want to feel silly. So where, oh yeah, boys, uh, fantasizing about the boys who mugged me. Um, I would drive around daydreaming about that event. And what had happened in my mind was nothing like what had happened in real life. In my mind, I would put the hurt on them, teach them a lesson about trying to steal money from a man who's trying to just pay some bills and save a little extra for Christmas for his kids. I'd think about that moment of impact when his fist connected with my face. And instead of reeling back and almost falling, my face would stay solid like a slab of granite and the bones in his hand would break. The more I did this sort of thing, the worse my life got. Panic attacks were almost daily. I found myself practically paralyzed, unable to move forward with anything in my life. My job, my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my kids, they were all going stagnant. And I realized one day something had to change. I prayed about it day and night and I realized something. I haven't forgiven those boys. How can you say you forgive someone when you're fantasized about beating the snot out of them every day? That's not forgiveness. That's not love. And that's not the charity that we are absolutely obligated to show to our fellow men. Uh, Charity and forgiveness, these aren't optional. It's part of the deal in Christianity. You have to do it. You don't get to heaven if you don't. So I prayed about it some more. And my first step was to stop fantasizing about it. Stop thinking about it. Because what you do links to what you say, links to what you think, links to what you do. 
and those fantasies, they're really a willingness to dwell on the past and dwell on my own spite. So I started picking out little things I could do during the day and offer that up just for these boys. I skipped dessert, shave in cold water, put a pebble in my shoe, just little things, maybe a little bit of fasting. And one day everything changed. It was a bad time for me uh, because of some decisions I had made that weren't real prudent. Uh, Financially, I found myself uh, going downtown uh, and applying for food stamps. Now, standing in that line with over 50 other people, I felt pretty humiliated and uh, useless. I had completely failed my family, and now I had to rely on the government to feed them. Another man was doing my job. And I looked around me in that dark, smelly hallway, and I saw the eyes of all the other welfare recipients. I had always had certain preconceptions about those people. Not just the poor, per se, but about the people we call freeloaders in middle-mid-class America. I'm not an idiot, and I could see that there were people like that in the line, but in the eyes of most of those people, I saw the same sense of despair that I was feeling. And I had gone through most of the application process, and I had learned how the system worked, so I knew something else, too. I knew that a lot of those people were actually trapped. They were caught in the government's financial nets and no longer free to go out and earn wages. That's, that's what happens to a lot of people. They looked uh, pretty much the same as those boys who mugged me, though. They had the same mannerisms and they, had, they spoke in the same dialect. And uh, the boys who had mugged me, had, it had happened in a neighborhood where almost 75 for the Uh, percent of the people survived on welfare. For the first time, something else took the place of fear and hatred. I was feeling pity. Later I reflected on this and I realized that the reason I had failed to forgive them was because I had tried to eliminate something inside me. I looked at anger and I tried to make it be gone. You can't do that. Uh, When something takes up such a large piece of you, it's not just going to disappear just because you want it to. Because that would leave an enormous vacuum and who knows what else would take its place. To really forgive, I had to turn that anger into something else. For me, it was pity, but it could just as easily have been charity or no, any number of things. The point is to allow God to turn your anger into something else. Something useful and purposeful. And that's how you forgive people. If you fill your life with love, it doesn't leave room for much else, and it's a lot more peaceful. Now, in the examples I used, we talked about forgiving someone who does us wrong, and there's one harder than that, and that's when someone does our loved ones wrong. How do we forgive someone who hurts the people we love? Uh, It gets all the more difficult, whereas before... I'm saying it's okay to put yourself in a position where you might be hurt, but that changes a little in this situation because we can't do that to the people we love. We have to put up barriers to keep our loved ones safe sometimes, especially when it's our kids. But at the same time, we have to be realistic about the danger. 
I've seen mothers go to extremes to keep their kids safe, but safe from piddly things that really aren't actually a danger. You know, safe from from every little insult and hurt feeling. Uh, I think that leads to one of the reasons we call these people, these millennials now, snowflakes. But whether we use barriers or not, we have to be of a mind of forgiveness. The barrier should be out of love, not out of spite. And if you harbor ill feelings towards someone, you've got to find a way to turn that into something else. Let's see, we've got uh, current events. Um, they're talking about the moon, one of the Europa, uh, the moon around Jupiter, that's the one that's made of ice. And they're saying it would be difficult to land there because they think there are long, thin ice crystals coming up. I didn't know anyone was thinking about landing there. We haven't even landed on Mars yet. We're talking about landing on Europa, which is colder than Mars is. Although Europa has some ground heat that we don't think Mars has. Uh, The moons around Jupiter might be more inhabitable because uh, because of the gravity between the planet and the moon, the stuff inside the moon shifts and it causes friction. And it uh, actually, I don't know where the energy comes from. I don't know if it's friction or something else, but it gets hot. So we've got Europa, this giant ball of ice, on the inside. It's not actually ice, it's liquid water. And I think, I can't remember if it was Saturn's moon or Jupiter's moon, there are actually volcanic uh, volcanoes. Anyway, nobody's going to land on Europa soon because of the ice crystals that'll cut them up. That's kind of a weird thing to announce. Google announced that it's shutting down Google+. Plus. Uh, wasn't all that big anyway, no, no big loss there. Uh, Nikki Haley, she's resigning. <clears throat> she's pretty tough. I liked her. She's one of the few people in the Trump administration that really stuck with Trump. Uh, North uh, Korea invited Pope Francis to Pyongyang. That might be a pretty good match, uh, Kim Jong-un and Pope Francis. Uh, let's see, we, uh, that, uh, pastor in, uh, where was it? Uh, Turkey? No. Yeah, the the pastor that, uh, um, President Trump was trying to get out. He's finally out. I can't remember what country it was now, but it's, uh, uh, Andrew Brunson. Uh, he was in, he was in prison for two years and he's out, thanks to Trump. That's our man. Uh, looks like, um, wow, there's, uh, he discovered 11 bodies in, uh, Michigan of infants, and it was in a formal, fun- uh, former funeral home in Detroit, it looks like. It's kind of creepy. That's all I got. Uh, yeah, it's not easy to do, uh current events when you got no one to back and forth with but uh uh maybe next week he'll he'll be on again 
or I find someone else and replace him if he doesn't if he doesn't start showing. Well, think about what we said. Think about what I said. And uh, thanks for listening to a podcast about Catholic things. And I will see you next week.